Stand by for action. Today are AR Zone admins Barbara DeGrand, Tim Geyer, Ronnie Lee, and Roger Yates. Hi, everyone. Hello, Hi, Carolyn. Hello. Hi, Carolyn. We'll also be joined today by an amazing person and cook, Dino Sama. Dino is the author of Alternative Vegan International Vegan Fair Straight from the Produce Isle, which is a vegan cookbook based solely on produce. Dino also maintains a brilliant blog and podcast site at altvegaltveg.blogspot.com. He's a vegan educator and a mastermind of cooking without omnivore substitutes. Welcome to AR Zone, Dino. Woo! Hi. <laughs> Hi, Dino. Hi, Dino. <laughs> <laughs> yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Carolyn, I don't, th- I don't think there was enough superlatives in your intro. <laughs> I swear, I didn't pay her to say Thanks that. Some- she said that all on her own. I sent Dino the intro beforehand and it, like didn't have any of that stuff in there and Dino sent it back with all that in there. <laughs> <laughs> the check's in the mail, Caroline. <laughs> Dino, would you like to start today by sharing the exciting news with us about the second edition of your book? Yes, I got the word from the publisher that it's gone to the printers, and it's almost done, and it's up to a thousand pre-orders already. That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't think that was humanly possible. Um, I thought it would sell uh, enough copies that my mum would buy one, and possibly (laughs) someone else. Perhaps your mum's bought a thousand. (laughs) <laughs> if you knew my mum, you would not say that. <laughs> you didn't even buy the first one. <laughs> How long did it take you to write it? Oh, uh, gosh. It was um, between, I would have to say, like, December of 05, January of 06-ish, until uh, 
almost the next year. It almost took a year to write and test and get correct. And see, the writing itself was, it barely took me like two, three months to write the actual content of it. But then to get it correct took, you know, the other 10 months because with a cookbook, if you don't have everything just so and there's egregious errors like, you know, you tell someone not to put salt in something and it tastes awful, they're going to get pissed off at you and send you emails like, fuck you, I'm never going to cook for you again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my publisher knew this because um, there were certain other vegan cookbooks released at the time that weren't tested and the recipes either wouldn't work or sucked, you know. I'm not shitting you when I say that I saw a recipe that had a recipe for a vegan cheese ball, and it said, buy vegan cheese, grate it, make it into a ball, and roll it in, like, chopped nuts. <laughs> <laughs> That's my kind of cooking, maybe. Yeah. Uh, if you could have heard the filthy cuss words that were coming out of my mouth when I saw that. <laughs> I think I peeled off six layers of paint in my apartment from that moment. <laughs> what, what sort of cookbook is yours, Dino? How is your cookbook different to other cookbooks? Well, for one thing, it wouldn't ask you to go buy a fucking vegan cheese ball. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> is it different in any other ways? Well, it's 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 all produce and the purpose of the book was I want anybody anywhere in the world, be they in South America, Africa, um, India, US, you know, wherever they are, to be able to run to the market, pick up ingredients, knock up a meal in about 20 minutes or so, and eat and make it with real food and make it with stuff that you can recognize what everything is and not have to rely on what I call, you know, WVIs, weird vegan ingredients like uh, nutritional yeast or soy milk or tofu or blah blah like where I was living at the time I was in this god-awful city in South Florida where um, I could find tofu at the supermarket but it cost upwards of 250 a pound not two pounds fifty a you know right um, anyway <laughs> it was two dollars and fifty cents for like a little 14 ounce container of the tofu and I was furious that there were so many cookbooks that were saying uh, you know use like a pound of tofu in your morning tofu and then when you make like a cake later on, use like a quarter pound of tofu in that. And then later on, you know, inject uh, tofu into your veins because that's all we fucking eat. So like, oh, <laughs> 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 so, and then the other, you know, the other cookbooks were like so, you know, blissed out hippie that you, you could just smell the patchouli from two miles away and you can see the book just flying on its own sense of smugness. And I was like, no, that's not me. I don't want somebody to go spend a small fortune on their grocery bill every week. I want everybody to be able to, you know, have this to be accessible. And I would have to say that a measure of um, its success, not with regards to how many it sold, which, and it sold plenty, but it, with regards to, I get emails from people who are in like some weird corners of the earth who say, you know, I use your book all the time and I get a lot of joy from it. From it. And it doesn't cost me a fortune in having to go to the store every time, I, you know, I have to buy something for it. So, yeah, that, that, that's how it's different. And there's no, you know, cheese balls in there. <laughs> I get passionate about it, shall we say. <laughs> how did you become a vegan, Dino? And, and what led you down this path towards um, producing vegan cookbooks and promoting veganism? 
It's not my fault, I swear. <laughs> I'm secretly Caroline. Um, just... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, seriously, it's, um, it was a few years back. This was after one of the hurricanes had hit uh, Florida. And I started listening to podcasts because um, they were free. And I had just gotten my first Mac back in the summer of 2005. Oh, gosh, this sounds like a horrible life story. Anyway, uh, I had gotten my first Mac. And along with that first Mac came iTunes. And at the same time, I also got that um, iPod at the same time. And I didn't much like listening to music, but I really love listening to podcasts and I didn't realize what podcasts were at the time. Um, I, I love radio shows that had a lot of like chatter and stuff like that. Um, so when I discovered podcasts, it was like having a radio show that I could take with me without the advertisements and all the other garbage in the middle. So I started downloading all these podcasts and I saw one called the Vegan Freak Podcast and I downloaded all their episodes. And at that point, they had just started producing episodes and I was very much interested in what they had to say because they had this very conversational manner. And over and over again, they kept saying, you need to go vegan. And I would sort of say, wow, why? Not to anybody in particular, sort of myself, because I talk to myself sometimes. I'm a good listener, I swear. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then like they would tell me, well, you need to go vegan because they're suffering in a glass of milk, they're suffering in every egg. And, and, and so they explained it. Now, I should have known this before having grown up around vegans, but all my life, um, they kept using the word vegetarian over and over again rather than vegan. They, they kept saying, you know, it's the vegetarian club, it's a vegetarian society and everybody should go vegetarian. And according to my definition, I was already vegetarian because, you know, I was raised um, South Indian Hindu Brahmin where you don't eat animal flesh, but you eat the eggs and the milk. So when I kept hearing vegetarian over and over again, I was like, well, I'm doing fine. I'm doing enough. It's, it's fine. But the vegan freak said, no, vegetarian is not enough. You have to go vegan. You know, vegan is a moral stance and that you have to kind of, you know, follow what you feel is right in your heart with your ethics and with understanding why you're doing this. And you kind of have to, you know. So once I realized that, it took, oh gosh, a couple of months from that point on. Um, so if I started listening, let's say in September, it was November, I went vegan, at which point I joined the forums. And I like to cook. I always have loved to cook. So I started sharing my recipes on, on the forum and they had a chat room set up where I would kind of lurk around and people would post, you know, what's in their pantry at that moment. And this just became a thing. I don't even know how it became a thing, but somebody had asked me randomly, hey, do you know, you post really cool recipes on the forums, but I don't have this, this and this that you call for in that recipe. What else can I make with those same ingredients? Um, but I don't have these. And I would go through and give them like five or six different options. And the owner of the forums, um, uh, Bob Torres, he approached me and said, uh, do you know you should really write a cookbook? And I said, no, no, uh, <laughs> I don't feel like it. It's too much work. It's whatever. <laughs> and I could never, I would never find a publisher who would be publishing the thing because, you know, who wants to read a vegan cookbook? Is that crazy or what? And he said, well, FYI, I have a publishing company and I've, published my own book from it that's why I started the podcast is so that I can promote the book and I said oh so well that shut me up and so <laughs> <laughs> this was <laughs> uh I would have to say 
oh gosh, I want to say like March of 06 that I started compiling all the recipes that I'd been posting on the forums. A bunch of my friends who were on the chat rooms, they would copy and paste what I said, you know, for them to do into like a notepad document. They would send me what I had asked them to make. And, you know, I started compiling all this stuff. And I'm lazy, so I said, well, I don't feel like doing this all myself. Can I have some, you know, quote unquote, volunteers <laughs> to do all this legwork because it's a lot of work. So there were like 10, 15 people who jumped up and said, yes, of course, no problem. And I was like, hey, great. This book is writing itself. Uh, <laughs> and so like over time, it started to shape itself and it started taking on a very particular flavor because like people would ask me, well, where did this recipe come from? Why did you think of it in this way? Uh, have you actually made it? And in many cases, I have never made such and such before. So there were sometimes a little few tweaks that needed to be made along the way. And of course, when you're asking me about the story and I'm typing it out to you anyway, I figure, well, why not just throw it into the recipe along with the thing anyway and you know, make it sort of a thing. And so it ended up being where all the recipes had a story behind them. And it sort of grew and evolved based on what that community of vegans who was testing it wanted. And that's why it took so long is because it was like, it kind of grew organically, if you will, you know? And that's kind of where I got to where I am now is after all these edits and going back and forth with the proofreader and, you know, having the tester say this sucks. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. And back and forth and back and forth. It kind of grew legs of its own, if you know what I mean. It kind of took on a life of its own. And here I am now. Hey, so podcasts do do some good. Yeah, of course they do. Um, they're a way of reaching people where it's a very one-sided conversation, you know? It, it's not like an internet posting where the person answers back. It's more like you have the opportunity to sit down with somebody for, let's say, 20 minutes or so, which is usually, I would say, the average attention span of your podcast listener. And really, what's the word I'm looking for? Explain where you're coming from and, and, and have the time to break it down and, and, and explain it in such a way that it would make sense to somebody who's hearing a one-sided conversation. This is why I found that my cooking podcast has been working out so well for me is because I have your ear for a certain amount of time. And if I spend that time in getting you excited about cooking, maybe you won't follow the exact recipe, but it'll be there in the back of your head, even if you're not completely listening 110%. So um, I'm talking to you podcast listener right now. You may not be hearing me consciously. You may be standing on the subway, you know, staring at that girl's awesome rack or looking at those obnoxious um, advertisements above, you know, that they have all over the place. And we're secretly sneaking stuff into your ears that uh, you may or may not want there. So maybe pay attention to what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, the problem is, Dino, that uh, I fear that if you add my ear for any length of time, you'd fry it. <laughs> yeah, but would that, would that be vegan, though, uh, Rog? Well, I'd add that to volunteer at, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a bit chewy, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> be a little bit tough from being overused but yeah yeah I, I love podcasts for that specific reason it's because they do work because <laughs> people are downloading it for a reason one of the things i really appreciated about your podcast you know it was almost like having vegan university as far as cooking um i would listen to them but then i would always save them for later use because it, there was a lot about 
cooking with spices and cooking with different kinds of foods than what I was used to. And one time I cooked um, from your cookbook something called Venpangal. Yes. And I loved it. And I was looking all over the internet. Where can I find an email to write this guy and tell him that this, this is the greatest recipe? And I went to your blog, and there you had just posted. You said, buy this um, buy the book. It's worth the price just for this one recipe. And it's like, yes, that's what I was trying to tell you. And you, the timing was absolute perfect. So I just left a comment on your blog post. It's like, yes, this is what I wanted to tell somebody. <laughs> it's, it's such a great, in fact, I used it for a family, um, my my contribution to a family holiday meal, and it went mm-hmm. over pretty well. Uh, my family's mostly Asian, and so they thought it's it tasted kind of in the realm of what they were used to. So they really awesome. appreciated it. Yeah. So what? thank you. Barbara, why don't you describe what Venpongal is? Because I know what it is from my memories, but I'd like to hear it from somebody who doesn't. Well, I love lentils. I use them a lot, lentils and rice. But uh-huh. this is like lentils and rice on steroids. It's got yeah. some <laughs> wonderful spices that, you know, through the how you kind of cook them in the oil a little bit and let them pop, the seeds pop and what have mm-hmm. you. So you get that wonderful spices. And then there's some roasted cashews, which mm-hmm. is like a luxury item. To me, it just made it delectable it's it's really wonderful it's simple and it's it's great leftover so it's great to take somewhere with you or if you want if you like i live alone right now for the most part although relatives are in and out all the time but (laughs) but when it is just me for a few days it keeps really well and so you can use it for the main course or a side dish um, it's it's just a great staple, and I would recommend for um, people that haven't tried that to get a hold of that cookbook and try that one recipe because I think adding things like that to your repertoire really helps you feel like you've always got something. And for me, when I run out of fresh produce, I eat a lot of fresh produce, but it's always good to have something for the end of the week or the end of the month when you don't have the funds to go buy more fresh produce. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one to have on hand, so I really appreciate that recipe. I, you, I, I was so surprised when that became like the most popular recipe in the book because Venpongal is sort of, um, it's called Kitidi in the north of India. It's, it's one of those like peasant dishes that sort of is so ubiquitous that pretty much every house has their own way of doing it. And so to have something from like the backwaters of South India become like the most popular recipe in that book with all the recipes that are in there, my mom was surprised. She was just like, I can't believe that, you know, people love it, so, but it's so comforting. It is. It is. It's a, cl- it's a classic. It is. It's absolutely a classic, and it's so popular for that reason. But, like, those cashews are just, I don't know what it is, but whatever you throw cashews at, it'll be good. Yeah, it just adds that extra something. Well, I just made that something you put in the AR Zone chat window about somebody asked you about TVP and chili yeah. and I wrote it all down and that's another one now that I can keep on hand because all all week I can use it in on top of baked potatoes or in um, wraps or tortillas or yeah. I mean it's just great to have things like that where you can I li- I don't like to have time or I, I probably could make time but I don't always to cook <laughs> several meals every single day but if I have a couple things like that or a pot of soup then I'm cooking in between and then using that up and it's it makes it very easy to be vegan. Well, and I like that you say that it is easy to be vegan as long as you have like a couple of those things that you can depend on, because I feel like that's kind of where I don't want to talk bad about other styles of cooking or other cookbooks, but it's sort of like I understand that there's going to be those recipes that you make once in a while that they're really meant to wow and really meant to impress. And that that's that's perfectly fine. And there's a time and a place for that. But I feel like um 
by and large, the food that we should really be discussing with other vegans and um, the world at large is those things that you just turn to all the time and that don't cost a lot of money and that don't involve a lot of um, price of admission, if you know what I mean. For example, that Venpongal, in all honesty, you could make it very, very cheap if you didn't use the cashews and you just used, you know, you cut back on the spices a bit. Uh, it's beans and rice, to be perfectly honest. And it gets you through this. Caroline, I love how you said, you know, during the end of the week or the end of the month, because it's Sunday and I haven't had time to go shopping because, like, I've been laid up, you know, with a bad back for the past couple of days. And I've just, like, it's been disgustingly cold outside and I'm not about to step foot outside the door. But like there's certain things that I turn to when I have nothing in the house and I need to knock something up really quickly that I feel like if we started getting the word out about those particular kind of dishes, it would sort of make it a lot more accessible than saying to make a vegan meal, you need to go get the uh, veggie meat from the store and, um, you know, throw that into something else. Yeah, I agree. That's so not necessary. No, and that's pretty much all I see in a lot of the, the vegan households that I go to is like half the thing is, you know, prepackaged God knows what. And it's really not as good for you either. No, is that a very guilty silence that I'm hearing? Sort of everybody just going into their freezer <laughs> hiding it. <laughs> yeah, I think a little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dino, do you think that talking about cooking, sharing recipes, things like that, do you think that's an it's an important form of vegan advocacy? I think it's one of the few that really gets the point out there because when I was at um, Steve's family's house and uh, they were asking me how I made that wonderful pot of mashed potatoes and I told them it's got two ingredients, it's potatoes and coconut milk and you mash them together, it kind of makes it very accessible at that point and very, very easy. Then veganism doesn't have to be this big unknown you know out there kind of thing it's a five pound bag of potatoes and a tin of coconut milk and that's it and it's really tasty and it was really easy to do you know what i mean so when you kind of break it down you've got to get your foot in the door somewhere and yep. for some people it's going to be uh tasty food for some people it's going to be sitting down and talking with them about you know why you have come to the conclusions that you have come to. For other people, it's going to be reading books that uh, people that are way smarter than mine have written. Uh, <laughs> um, but I feel like, for me, I use food as advocacy because it's easy, for, for me anyway. I've had people come to the restaurant all the time where they'll say, okay, may, well, maybe I can't give up meat completely, but I can definitely see myself doing this at least once a week where, you know, I only eat vegan because this food is fairly tasty and it seems, you know, pretty accessible and easy to put together or I can come by here and buy it and it's fine. And, you know, I, uh, I quote this woman all the time because she is awesome. Colleen Patrick Goudreau always says, um, you know, don't do nothing because you can't do everything. Mm -hmm. So, okay, maybe that person is not going to go vegan overnight. That's fine. But if I can get him to sort of come over to my side and enjoy some vegan food and make some vegan food and share some vegan food with other people, it starts spreading. And there's, and there's food that's already vegan that's already in the recipes of uh, multiple people. There's this stuff called, um, what's it called, Texas caviar. They make it in, in the Midwest. It's, it's ubiquitous when you go to the Midwest of the United States pretty damn near every barbecue or potluck or whatever will have a bowl of Texas caviar. And Texas caviar is black beans or black-eyed peas 
bell peppers of various kinds, some scallions, some uh, garlic, some cumin, a little bit of cayenne pepper, some olive oil, some lemon juice, and you know, some whatever other vegetables that you have lying around. And it's vegan already. And, and, and it's a recipe that's been, you know, clearly passed down from generation to generation because there's, I, I've seen so many versions of it and people always have it on hand and I can easily fill myself up on it. And once you tell someone that you like that stuff, they make sure that it's there for you. You know what I mean? So whenever now I go to the Midwest, Steve's uh, sister-in-law, who was the first one who introduced it to me, she makes sure that there's a bowl of it there uh, because it's tasty and it's filling and it looks really impressive. And there's like a ton of vegan recipes out there that, you know, if you just spread it out there, um, there's that one with the pasta with garlic and um, olive oil and, uh, you know, some red chili flakes and salt and pepper. Really easy to make, really quick to knock up, very tasty. Everybody loves it. Uh, there's the Texas caviar, there's the mashed potatoes. There's, there's like a hundred different vegan recipes out there that are so stupidly easy to make that people either have all the ingredients to in their house all the time or can get fairly easily and don't have to go through too much backbreaking labor to figure out, you know, what am I supposed to do with this stuff? That I, I feel like if we don't make it easy for ourselves to be in this world, it's nobody else is going to do it. Which is why I feel like food really gets it out there because like with food, you're connecting on a level that you cannot with anything else. I feel like with food, it's, it's, um, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. I feel like food is one of the most intimate things that you can share with somebody else because they're taking something that you have made with your two hands and they're putting it into their bodies and it's becoming a part of them. There's something about that that's more intimate than touch. It's more intimate than sex. It's more intimate than talking. It's, it's, they're, they're physically making something that you have wrought with your hands a part of their bodies. And I, I don't know how else <laughs> to like really get across how strongly I feel about food because it is such an intimate uh, connection that you form with someone when you share a meal that, well, especially a meal that you've cooked yourself. And that's why I feel like with the food thing, it's it's so much easier to do the activism because it's like anybody can understand allergies. Anybody can understand this person doesn't eat thus and so. They can't always grasp the larger picture. And sometimes they don't want to grasp the larger picture because it's too hard and it's too headachey and it's too much work to really get into it. But they can get the the little step, which is have that Texas caviar on hand, have some really good tortilla chips on hand. That'll feed the vegan and shut him up, and he'll be very happy that you cook for him. <laughs> <laughs> I think making vegan food more accessible and and simplifying it like like you do takes a lot of the mystery away from veganism as a general matter as well. Mm-hmm. Well, because then it's not what do you eat anymore? It's oh yeah, you eat that stuff. Exactly. As then there's nobody in Steve's family who has ever asked, what do you eat? Because they've seen it in huge quantities in enormous spreads. Um, when we get together for holidays, I cook and I make very, very large spreads of food. And so if anybody else from outside asks, what do they eat? They're like, don't worry about what those two eat. They eat plenty. (laughs) (laughs) Dino, I've got a few questions to ask you from some of our AR zone members. I'll, go through a couple of them. Adam Little wanted to ask you what was the ideal vegan breakfast? For me? (laughs) (laughs) I think he was looking for some ideas for himself. 
if we're being perfectly honest, and I mean 110% honest with myself, it's usually a glass of water as I'm running out the door because I'm running late for work. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've had this morning. Right. Or soft pretzels that you've baked because you don't feel like going shopping. <laughs> Realistically, I, I am of the um, South Indian persuasion, so I do tend to have rice at every meal, and I do mean every meal. So in the morning, I tend to do the um, rice and beans thing just because I work in the kitchen and it means that I'm standing on my feet for hours at a stretch and if I don't have something that's going to keep me going for a long time I'm going to crash and get hungry really fast so any high sugar cereals anything with a lot of sweets in it it's not going to work for me I need something that's going to bind and that's going to keep me going lots of carbohydrate like complex carbohydrates and lots of good good protein so I do brown beans sorry brown rice and beans you know with the vent bungle is a ideal explanation of, of, brown, of brown rice and beans. It's, it's beans, it's, it's rice, it's spices, it's all the good things in the world all in one pot. Just because I find that when I eat beans and rice in the morning, I'm not hungry until like one or two o'clock in the afternoon. So I would have managed to get myself from, let's say, eight o'clock when I wake up until about... 9:45 when I'm out the door and then all the way through 2 p.m. in the afternoon it keeps me going for a good long time and I don't feel that sort of crash you know I, I can I can keep myself very well sustained for a good long time with beans and rice barring that there's always the option of the baked potato or baked sweet potato with the black bean chili there's always the option of uh, of oats and when I say oats I don't mean those god-awful rolled oats I mean the um, steel cut oats the ones that are kind of I think they're also called Irish oats. Those also keep me going for a good long time. I just find that I'm not a huge sweet person, so I don't like too many sweet things. So what I'll tend to do with my oats is that I'll throw in some walnuts and some dried cranberries, and I don't like any sugar or maple syrup or anything. I just like it kind of, you know, neat with some cinnamon and, uh, you know, some sliced apples and things like that. And that'll keep me going for a good long time because, again, oats are the complex carbohydrates. They're not rolled oats again not the rolled oats the rolled oats release very quickly and you're hungry again very quickly you want to eat the steel cut oats which will release their this thing slowly it's got fiber it'll fill you up really fast and it'll keep you going barring that i hate to say it but a smoothie sometimes just hits the spot when i don't really feel like doing much of anything else and there's this brand in the U.S. called Odwala that does these smoothies where they have um, oats and almonds and bananas and uh, soy milk and, um, you know, some water and whatever else. I find that I can make my own at home if I just throw some frozen bananas in and some water, um, some peanut butter, a couple of, you know, handfuls of oats and um, the rolled oats in this particular case because they grind up quickly and some almonds and I'll just give it a few whizzes. And if you have some, you know, ground flax seeds or whatever, throw that in there too. give yourself a boost for the morning. And that usually keeps me going for a few hours as well, because, again, you're talking complex carbohydrates. You're talking lots of good fiber, protein. It, it just keeps you going. Basically, I try to avoid anything that's kind of like a gimmicky breakfast, like pancakes or waffles or cereal, you know, like cold breakfast cereals, just because they're so full of sugar that if I try taking one of those things, I'm hungry in less than an hour. And I feel that sort of insulin crash where I'm kind of like, okay, I had a big, you know, shit ton of sugar before I'm running out the door. And then now I can't make it out of the subway because I'm just crawling. But, you know, it only takes me like an hour to get from, um, you know, shaving and showering and out the door into my work. But it 
it's long enough that I'm done. And I'm like, now I'm really hungry and now I have to eat something. And then, you know, by the end of the day, I feel like a fatty because I've eaten like 7,000 calories of, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> eat beans, eat rice, eat fruits, eat uh, roll, uh, steel cut oats, eat um, smoothies if you want, throw in whatever kind of fruit you want, but just like keep it nutritionally dense as much as humanly possible like you kind of don't want to be throwing in ice in there because it's just water for god's sake you can drink your water you don't need to throw it into your smoothie and and you know chug it down and run out the door and you'll be fine fantastic thank you for that i've also mm -hmm. got a question here from both a, a number of people actually wanted to ask this same question but specifically from or and carol seaman um they wanted to know have some ideas for some really quick and easy meals for people that don't normally cook Okay. Difficult, difficult question, I know. No, no, no. Fair enough. If I'm allowed to cheat and use a microwave, I can get you there. You can. Okay. What I have found for people who don't cook is mainly that they're afraid of it taking too long and then they don't have the attention span for it. And what I found is that if I get them started on the microwave, I can eventually get them interested enough that they're willing to sort of go all the way in and try the oven. And then once I've gotten them working with the oven, then I'm good. But anyway, I have found that roasted vegetables work really well in the microwave because it takes less than five minutes. So what you do is you get some broccoli or cauliflower or uh, snow peas or green beans or um, any kind of like soft veg like that, toss in a little bit of olive oil, throw in some um, Italian seasoning uh, or Mrs. Dash or curry powder or chili powder or whatever the kind of spice blend that you have lying around your house is that you like, just throw it in there. Toss it together with some salt and black pepper, throw it in your microwave covered for about five minutes and it's done. And um, you've got your vegetable component. Then you throw that onto some bread, throw that on some pasta, have it with rice, have it with a baked potato, have it with whatever you feel like. And you've got a meal which came together in a very short amount of time. Now, once I have, you know, I've held your hand with the doing of the um, the quick roasted vegetables in the microwave, I can usually convince people to eventually try it out in the oven where you preheat the oven to 350, do the same thing, throw the vegetables with the oil and the spices onto a baking sheet, throw it in there for 25 minutes and you're done. And then once I can convince you to do that, then I can sort of convince you to come onto the stove. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is like, Start small, start with the microwave. Yep. If you don't like to cook, it's probably because you're nervous about how long it's gonna take. And if you're really, really feeling that lazy about it, I even give you permission to use frozen vegetables. It's okay, I'm not gonna say anything, nobody else is. Just toss them in the oil, toss them in the spices, throw them in the microwave, set it for six minutes, call it a night, throw it onto whatever you want, your pasta, your bread, your rice, whatever you have. It'll be fine. I, I promise it'll be okay. And then once you've developed a taste for food with flavor rather than takeaway or boxed meals or, you know, cream of sodium mm -hmm. soup, you'll, <laughs> you'll start feeling the need to expand. And here's the thing. Once you've made the roasted vegetables in the oven, that roasted vegetable, any leftovers that you have makes the best soup the next day. Because now the spices have had a chance to really penetrate and, and you know, develop and so you throw uh, some garlic and onions into some oil and you saute it really fast throw in those leftover roasted vegetables add just enough water to cover it bring it up to a full washing boil throw in a tin of diced tomatoes turn off the heat you're done and you have a beautiful soup all ready to go and that soup goes again perfectly with bread with rice with pasta anything you have 
the point is, it's like, if you kind of look at your options and start small and then sort of branch out from there and kind of expand a little bit by a little bit, you'll get there. You'll eventually get to the point where you're making more elaborate meals. But let me just get you into the kitchen with the frozen veg and the oil and the spices and the microwave. And I promise you, eventually, you'll feel like, you know, going bigger. Sounds perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I have one other question from a member who wishes to remain anonymous. Fair um, enough. <laughs> they wanted to know how, to, how does one get turmeric off their hands after, <laughs> after an accidental overdose? <laughs> I am anonymous. <laughs> I am anonymous. It's never been an issue for me. Because <laughs> um, I don't care. <laughs> if it's like if it's like bright yellow, I think you would. No, no, really, I don't. Because like at work, my boss wears gloves when he's peeling beets or anything else that stains. I don't care. I just peel the beets because it'll come off eventually. <laughs> no, but seriously, with turmeric, turmeric works best with fat. So what you want to do is. Um, Put in about like a teaspoon of fat onto your hands and rub them vigorously to warm it up. And then once the turmeric has dissolved in the fat, then you rub your hands with a bit of salt to like abrade whatever's left over and then throw on some acid. It sounds like I'm making a salad dressing, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> throw on an acid like a lemon juice or, you know, vinegar or whatever to just kind of wash off the excess salt and wash off the excess fat and then wash it under warm soapy water and uh, it'll it'll clear right off. I'll pass that along. <laughs> I was going to say you could just rub some in your face and then you'd just be all the same colour. <laughs> actually, that's that's um, not a joke. That's actually serious. That's what women in South India do um, every morning for their beauty regimen is that they rub uh, grated turmeric onto their faces to uh, keep the skin young. Hmm. It's a lovely skin conditioner. It keeps you uh, it keeps your skin smooth and soft. Really? Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll see women walking around on the train every morning with yellow faces, and it's because they rub turmeric on their faces to kind of keep it fresh looking. And then, you know, it washes off, like in a couple of washes of water, it comes right out. Um, it's just that initial shock of yellow is a little surprising, especially if you have lighter complected skin, Caroline. Shush. <laughs> <laughs> Dino, what do you think about the raw food phenomenon? <laughs> oh God, you're gonna piss me! You're gonna piss off everybody now, Barbara. I told you I'm a troublemaker. <laughs> the word is out. It's he won't like it because he it'll stop him selling books. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, anybody who's doing the raw food thing is not buying my fucking book. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Let it be said right now, if you're doing the raw food thing, my book is not for you. I, I'm telling people how to cook, not to how to sit there and starve. Well, you've there. got some salads and stuff in here too, though. <laughs> you can figure out a salad on your own without a fucking cookbook. Go starve. I don't care. Um, no, I, I don't. I, I don't care for the raw food thing. It's, it's fucking self-involved, and it's, it's got nothing to do with ethics. Listen, nobody's hurt when you cook the carrot, you know, no, really. And 
and the stupid shit that they come out with is just infuriating, especially when it's like bad science. I, I actually heard somebody saying, because chimpanzees share 90 some odd percent of the genome with humans and chimpanzees eat a primarily fruit-based diet, we should all be raw food fruit eaters. And I'm like, chimpanzees also eat fucking bugs. <laughs> Not Stop vegan. being stupid. So. <laughs> <laughs> It's not all of them. I'm sure there's some very sensible raw food people out there, but. Um, so you're kind of on the fence when it comes to raw food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Part of it, part of the hostility comes from the fact that I, I kind of don't see the point. Science tells us that there, there are quite a few vegetables that are not bioavailable when they're not cooked, such as, oh, I don't know, rice, beans. I'm sorry, but that raw hummus is disgusting. I, I said it there. I said it. Um, <laughs> cook the fucking chickpeas, for God's sake. And there's vitamins and there's minerals in food that does not happen unless it's cooked. Um, think carrots. Their vitamin A becomes more available when it's steamed. With uh, spinach, unless you cook it, the iron becomes, you know, is, is all bound up in the in the leaves and everything else like that. And the point is, is like, it's, 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 there's no ethical basis for it there's you know what i mean like if you want to do it for your health that's great um if you feel better while you're doing it that's great don't try to sit on some moral high horse and pretend that you're better than everybody else because you can't eat anything and you're fucking starving so no don't care for it what about um some quick foods for um for lunches or easy to transport things for when you, you know you're not going to be home for lunch or you need to take something to work or for kids lunch boxes do you have any ideas for those kinds of that's always I'm a difficult not, one. Not, oh gosh, with with children, I have a hard time just because um, I, I find that with children, unless they've been raised correctly, it's kind of a tough time feeding them, if you know what I mean. Yes. They're so used to a certain way of doing things, but my mother has had lengthy discussions with me about this, and she said, with children, they need food that's soft, number one, because their teeth haven't fully developed, so they can't really bite down and appreciate, the, you know, the full-on uh, al dente or crunchy food that um, the adults have. So if you've noticed um, those foods in South Indian food, uh, in South Indian cooking that are accessible to the entire family, they tend to be mushy. Venpongol is a prime example of this. Um, Barbara, you've made it before. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. It's mushy because it's meant to be eaten by your two-year-old as well as, you know, the 80-year-old who is also missing teeth. So, kind of, so <laughs> <terrible>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so that means that the foods that I would normally suggest for an adult to have, like, you know, if can we tackle the adults first and then come back to the children? Yes. Don't let me forget the children. I'll come back to them, I, I promise. With adults, what I found is that if you, and now I'm going to contradict myself, and now everyone's going to say, Dino, you're a hypocrite. But if you keep most of the stuff raw, <laughs> it keeps really well. <laughs> I'm such a hypocrite. Anyway, <laughs> there's a technique for um, working with greens called massaging the greens, and it works really well with kale. And what you want to do is that you take the kale and uh, you throw on whatever your favorite dressing is. Let's say it's a Dijon dressing, let's say it's an Italian dressing, or whatever dressing you like. And 
you sort of like masticate it with your hands. So you, you, you strip the kale from the stems and you beat the hell out of it with your hands. And you just kind of really rub that dressing in there. And the dressing needs to have at least a bit of salt in there because that really starts to break down the cell walls. And so you kind of like beat it up with your hands. And so a huge bunch of kale becomes really, really small. And that will easily fit into any box. And now on along with that kale salad, you can throw in, you know, any of your favorite raw veggies, grated carrots, shredded beets, um, some daikon that's also been rubbed with salt because daikon is one of those vegetables that you don't want to eat all by itself when it's raw. You want to treat it with a little bit of salt so it also kind of softens up a bit. You can throw on some radish slices. You can throw on some uh, cherry tomatoes. You can throw on pretty damn near anything you want and that kale salad will be very, very filling. And if you want to make it even more like a boost of protein, throw on some nuts in there, throw on some dried fruit and it'll, it'll keep you going for a good long time. And again, because of that load of uh, fiber that it's got, it's going to keep you full fairly quickly. Beauty of it is that you don't have to heat it up. You don't have to have any, um, you know, fancy equipment for it to make it at home because it's you're just beating up kale leaves with your hands to, you know, make it easier to chew. And the reason you don't want to steam it is because, God, I sound like such a hypocrite, but the... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, it's really, really tasty when it's eaten raw. And I'm specifically suggesting this kale salad because it's extremely popular at the restaurant and people eat it and they're very surprised that it's not cooked because they're like, it, it tastes, you know, tender enough that it feels like it's been steamed for a while. And, and I find that with steamed greens, if you don't eat them immediately after they're steamed, they kind of lose something. So I prefer it to not have greens sit around too long after I've cooked them because they start losing their enzymes. Oh, God. <laughs> um, okay, now that I've stopped being a hypocrite, you can also take that same idea and use it for a sandwich. So supposing you have like a big French bread, you, you hollow out some of that bread from there and you toast it up to make croutons for a salad later. And you stuff it with grilled peppers or grilled courgettes or grilled aubergine or grilled tofu or whatever else you have lying around the house just throw it in there and wrap it up tightly in cling film and put a weight on it for about an hour or so and it'll kind of just like get kind of um all mashed up in there and it's the most delicious sandwich to have on your way out the door i'm trying to suggest stuff that's not going to require heating um i hope you understand why yes yes because okay. not everyone has access to Heat right. a source and, during the day. Yes. And most of the time you don't have the time to wait for it, especially if you're talking about a high pressure situation when you're traveling or something. You want something that'll keep. Right. So you want these sandwiches that are loaded with lots and lots of green, beautiful vegetables. So like those, those grilled red peppers and those grilled uh, courgettes and those grilled squashes and all these beautiful, beautiful colors that are like stuffed into the sandwich are just gorgeous and they and they stand up very well one of my favorite sandwiches in the world and it's out of season right now otherwise i would be eating it every single day is a um a crusty 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 baguette with thick slices of tomato and some thin slices of avocado just a little bit of lime juice and uh, a little sprinkling of salt and cracked black pepper and it is so divine mm especially when you have that like garden fresh tomato that's been grown in the sun and you can smell it from like a mile away and you unwrap that and you chomp into it and you hear the crackling of the bread and you've got that that little fattiness from the avocado and you have that fresh lime juice just kind of like 
sneaking up on you from somewhere and that this little burst of salt. Oh, it is just heaven. I'm drooling. I'm so hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we all, I think. <laughs> I also find that um, if you do like a, like a pilaf out of quinoa and some nuts and some dried raisins and, uh, you know, dried other fruits and things like that and some spices, you know, cumin and fennel and um, coriander and a little bit of nutmeg and cinnamon, uh, toss them all together. It tastes great cold or hot, uh, depending on what facilities are. Again, I'm going to keep suggesting beans and rice till I'm blue in the face because it is just so easy to take on your way out the door that, you know, everyone should have some in their freezer at all times. In case of emergency, you just take that with you and go. Peanut butter and jam sandwiches, great to take with you on the road because they're, they're yes, I understand they're a little bit sugary, but they keep you going. You know what I mean? Like you don't always have ideal situations. Take bags of little bags of nuts, take little bags of dried fruit, uh, you know, always keep something on hand at all times because I, I'm one of those people who hates to be hungry. So I always carry food with me no matter where I go. So like in my backpack, you'll see something, there'll be some crackers or some pretzels or some, you know, potato crisps or something like that just lying around in my bag. I hate being hungry. I hate feeling that point of hunger. So as soon as I feel the first pangs, I, I reach for something. <laughs> so I'm a prime example of, you know, what you shouldn't do, which is eat nonstop. <laughs> Crazy. What, what, about, what about peanut butter and onion sandwiches, Dino? That's that's one I like. My yeah. dad liked that. I, I guess that's yeah. a. I don't know. <laughs> I've never that's heard good. of that. It's, it tastes nice and it's good for keeping people away. Well, <laughs> I personally have a fetish for onion sandwiches. I like a really good um, Jewish rye bread with the caraway seeds in, and I like to fry that off in a little bit of peanut oil or olive oil. And I like thick, thick slices of red onion, and I like to just uh, sprinkle on some salt and black pepper and eat that. And it's a very unsociable sandwich, especially the way I make it, because I also rub a raw clove of garlic over it before I'm eating it. <laughs> but there are a few things that give me as much pleasure. And, and what about the kids? You said to remind you to get back to the kids. Okay. So for the children, I find that they like things that they can dip from one into the other. So I find... Apples and peanut butter works really well. Hummus and cucumber, hummus and baby carrots, hummus and pita chips, hummus and, well, you get the idea. Hummus is great. Yeah. <laughs> they like squishy foods. So any kind of pasta that you have with um, sauce, I find that pasta with tomato sauce tends to be good hot or cold. So even if it is cold, you know, I, I don't mind eating it cold and most kids don't mind eating it cold. I find that not to be funny, but like baked potatoes work really well for young ones, but not the whole big baked potato. There's a recipe in my book for what I call baked potato rounds. What you do is you slice them off into, let's say, one centimeter, you know, one and a half centimeters thick. Um, toss them in a little bit of oil, toss them in some herbs and uh, bake them in the oven for about 25 minutes and just let the kiddos have that because it's easy for them to pick up with their little hands since it's little small pieces and you don't require a fork or a napkin to, you know, do anything with that. So it's very easy for them to eat. And if you'd like them to try other vegetables, this is an excellent time to slice off some parsnips or some rutabaga or or sweet potatoes or yams or or yuca or whatever else you have and use that same technique 
uh, or plantains even, use that same technique to, you know, just slice them into about centimeter to centimeter and a half thick slices, toss them in herbs and spices, and let the kiddos pick them up, you know, with their fingers, because then it becomes something that's fun rather than, you know, like a proper meal. I find that with, with kids who are kind of finicky, I hate to say it, but just kind of cater to the finickiness if you're on the go, just because you don't want to have the drama. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. If, if you know for a fact that there are certain things that they're going to eat, this is so not the time to try to, you know, get them to try something new. Take something that you know that they're going to eat and just keep it in your purse, keep it in your backpack, keep it in on your person at all times, because when that kid gets hungry, I don't have children myself, thank God, but I, I know people with children. <laughs> <laughs> I would make a horrible parrot because like the second I hear that particular tone of voice, that, that I'm hungry tone of voice, because I've been there before as a kid and I know what it feels like, and your parents don't have anything on hand, and it's just this moment of just sheer blinding panic of, oh, fuck, what am I going to eat? There's nothing here. Like, when I was a kid, I hated leaving the house for that specific reason because, number one, I can't always find a bathroom nearby. Number two, I can't always find food. It was not a good look. Like, in my house, I could go to the fridge, there was something there. I could go to the pantry, there was something there. I was surrounded by food. You go outside, and somehow it's rude to, you know, eat because you're hungry. I've never got that. But anyway, point is, is like, there's certain things that you always want to have on hand for your kiddos. My, my sister-in-law does this, and I, and I think it's an excellent idea. She keeps, like, a large bowl of grapes on the dining room table that's already been removed from the stems and pre-washed and ready to roll. So anytime one of the kids passes by, they just reach for a handful and eat it. I do the same thing when I'm there with uh, what I call apple chips. I take um, apples, I slice them up very thinly, and I just leave them lying around the house. Um, wherever the kids are so that whenever they see them they feel a little spark of hunger and they go grab that and eat that rather than you know the junk food that they see all over the place they love eating bananas that same way I'll, I'll leave sliced bananas lying around and I mean obviously it's not gonna last for too terribly long but you know you know what I mean just kind of keep these things lying around that you know that they like to eat and present them in such a way that is pleasing to them call it whatever you have to call it I don't even care like I I got my nephew and niece to eat apples by calling them apple chips by slicing them up really thinly. That's what got them there. Do whatever it takes because getting children to eat can sometimes be a challenge when they're playing and they're in the middle of something. They don't care. They're with their friends. They don't want to hear, you know, it's mealtime. They want to hear, you know, let's go jump on that thing. That's it. So whatever it takes to get whatever you can in them at however you do it, just do it. it, it they'll get there. And, when they're hungry, they'll let you know. And when you hear it, you better have the food ready. <laughs> Those are really good suggestions. Thank you so much. for. No I think your, your inner child must be alive and well because these are great. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dino. No problem, Barbara. Dino, have, do you find that a lot of people talk about cheese and how important cheese is in their life? And given the oh. way that you prepare food, how do you get around that? Because you, you avoid the fake cheeses, I guess, huh? Yes, the fucking cheese. Oh, my God. I hate the cheese thing <laughs> so much. I swear to God, listening to some people talk about cheese is like listening to a crack addict talk about crack. It's like it's bad. They, they talk about it like if they don't have it, they're going to shrivel up and die. It's oh, my. It's one of those few things that I tend to, depending on the person, I either call them a fatty or tell them that they're sounding like a drug addict because it's it's really sort of one or the other 
with people's obsession with fucking cheese. It's one of those few times that I'm kind of like, just give the day of cheese a chance. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a battle that I'm not going to win. And I've more or less sort of conceded on that front with regards to cheese dipping sauces. Like I make a really good crock cheese with uh, chickpeas and miso paste and mustard and garlic powder and onion powder, a bit of turmeric, a couple of tablespoons of nutritional yeast and like a tiny bit of lemon juice and some salt and pepper and paprika. And I grind that up into like a smooth puree and, you know, a little bit of tahini to give it some flavor. And that becomes an excellent cheese dipping sauce. And then I have my, um, macaroni and cheese which is omni tested and approved um it's on it's on the uh blog site if you search for dino's mac mac and cheese it's it's there and it involves similar ingredients it's got coconut cream and you know flour and oil and you know all these other ingredients it'll get you there aside from that if it's like a if it's like a cheese obsession on pizza or something like that i'm just like just try the day and leave me alone because you're infuriating me i um made a pizza last night with day of cheese and it actually is not a bad substitute but i i use it almost never because i i find that i've just i've just lost the taste for that heavy fattiness fat yeah i really have yeah. And it is wonderful. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Day of cheese is absolutely delicious, but it's fucking expensive. Yeah, it is. Well, for good reason. I mean, it's it's pretty much the only one out there that's worth eating. All the rest of them suck. <laughs> that was a beautiful pizza. I saw that online, Tim. Oh, thank you. Tim, the, the cheese one is just one of those where I just choose not to get involved because it's it, it ends in tears. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you've been a vegan for a long while, Tim. How do you deal with it? I've been a vegan for about almost two years. So for a long time, I just didn't because, as you said, before Dayo was available here, which I think was about six months ago, there wasn't anything that was – it wasn't edible. It, wasn't, it certainly wasn't cheese. Right. And even – see, when I, when I w- would eat dairy products, I was a vegetarian for almost 10 years. And when I would eat dairy products, I didn't like margarine. I preferred butter. I've always said if I'm going to eat something, I'd rather eat the thing that it's supposed to be rather than the thing that you know that pretends to be something else. So I've never really liked those fake substitute products for real food. So the cheese substitutes have never done anything for me. Day is no, pretty exactly. good f- for certain applications. But my son-in-law is – practically vegan and the cheese is something that he struggled with but my daughter told me last night that she made some completely vegan stuffed manicotti and yeah and he loved it so we've crossed a hurdle and uh, (laughs) yeah so that's good stuff (laughs) but she she used uh, she used daya and tofu and you know it's hard it's hard to get around that stuff trying to make those kind of dishes the the vegan ricotta is actually very easy to do. You don't need the um, daya for that one. Vegan ricotta is just uh, tofu, coconut cream, and um, a bit of garlic and salt, and that'll get you there. Yeah. So, like, if you're doing, like, a stuffed manicotti or, like, a lasagna or something like that, what yeah. you do is you take, like oh, – gosh, I'm thinking of this in restaurant terms, so I'm going to try to scale it back a bit. So – Forgive me, everybody, for talking about tofu, but I rarely do. But, you know, Tim brought up the uh, Trojan horse of the cheese thing. Anyway, <laughs> you, you get that, like, yeah. <laughs> well, I was I was going to comment earlier that I was glad to hear that we were promoting violence when Dino was talking about beating up on the poor kale. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew, you know, it's it's an AR Zone podcast, so it had to happen. It tastes better if you beat it in front it of its children. It has to be incorporated. Yeah. That's right. The, the kale tastes better if you beat it up in front of its children. 
<laughs> Over here, we used to make before. Um, the, the, we've got in the UK, we've got several brands of vegan cheese. Yeah, you, you have Cheesley. We have Cheesley. There's one called Cheese. There's another one now that's coming from, I think, from Holland called Nomu. It's uh, from a called Vigusto, and that's people all, all raving about that, although it costs about twice as much as, as the other brands. I've, I've not tried that one. But many years ago, because I've been um, a vegan, blimey, uh, around about 40 years. Yikes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> The living, the living dead. dead. <laughs> <laughs> and in those early days, because there weren't any of those products, so we used to we used to make our own cheese, vegan mm. cheese. And what we would do, we'd get um, some kind of hard margarine. You don't really get it now. It was it was it was produced for the Jewish community, and uh, there was some stuff called tomor, which was like hard margarine. So you could melt it, and then if you left it, it would get it would go hard again and we melt some of that in, in a pot add some soya flour add a teaspoonful of yeast extract stir it all up together and then let it set and we'd use that for cheese is um That's... yeast extract sort of like the uh vegemite yes mm. yeah we'd use it as cheese yeah so so it was like brown well, cheese it was wasn't it of, ronnie yeah it wasn't uh it depended how much of the uh, of the yeast extract you put in. I used to quite like it if you had it with, with onions and pickle in a sandwich. It wasn't too bad. <laughs> if you totally disguised the taste of it, it was quite. It was all right, wasn't it? My wife. <laughs> and she says that really, that's just like you might as well just eat a lump of fat. That's what well, that's what it is. It is really yes, but that's what the fuck else is cheese? It's cheese. fat. <laughs> That, that's what we did <laughs> in, in, in the olden days, as, as I say. Did you ever make, make it like that, Roger? Because you've been you've been vegan. Yeah, yeah. We used to do the to, the tomo thing, and it's blue and white uh, thing from kosher shops, isn't it? Yes. And like you say, you, you used to melt it and then you used to leave it, and it go yeah. hard again. Yeah. So that's right. Got some emails asking. In fact, I've got got zillions of emails asking for this question, which was about: um, Is it true that um, cooks and chefs are hypocrites? But I think of you've, course I am. You've answered that one. <laughs> and then, yeah. The real question is: um, So, what? Why do cooks and chefs uh, all swear? Well, I have always had a smut mouth. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it. <laughs> well, actually, actually Dino, okay. that that was that wasn't my real question. That that, that was a second well, joke you question. <laughs> the, um, so fuck that. I'll go on to the fucking real fucking question. Um, yeah. So the real fucking question is, um, you know, when when I'm not being an occasional lecturer and earning a pittance, I do some work for Vegan Island, which is a vegan society of Ireland, and there's a lot of talk at the moment about palm oil. And all the implications about that and the fact that it seems to be absolutely everywhere. Have you been kind of keeping up with the kind of palm oil story? Do, do you have any any kind of tips on it? Because unfortunately, even if you see in the ingredients list uh, vegetable oil, that could be palm oil as well. And so we found over the last few months that more and more vegan, in inverted commas, um, ingredients or, or um, products are, are not vegan because of the palm oil in it. It tastes bloody delicious. So, um... I don't know what to say. 
I, I have no that, idea about the pop. It's very tasty stuff. I, I think you mean, Roger, that it involves the, you know, the slaughter of animals, even though the product itself doesn't actually come from an animal. It's it's to do with the, um, is it the orangutans that have been the orangutan issue, but also the, the you know the the cutting down of the rainforest and the it's also got a, a yeah. human rights issue. Um, I mean, it's it's a big deal in Britain and Ireland at the moment. I mean, you, you'll yes. be aware of that, Ronnie, but I, obviously it's not made it, it over not, the, no. the pond the, the, yet. The big then, thing no? in the U.S. is that most of our oil is uh, soybean um, because soybeans are the most heavily subsidized. Well, one of the most heavily subsidized. There's corn, there's soybeans and uh, there's wheat. And those three are like hugely, hugely subsidized. So our vegetable oil is always soybean oil and our um, pretty damn near everything that you have has soybean there somewhere, some way, shape or form. So the only major source of palm oil in the U.S. would be through the um, Earth Balance. And they've already released a statement saying that their palm oil is from some, you know, hippie commune or something. I don't know. But I did. I, I, <laughs> I don't mean to be so flippant, but you, you know what I'm talking about when I say, you know, from some hippie commune where they, you know, cry to Mother Earth every night. Whatever. Point is, is that the, the U.S. palm oil thing isn't as ubiquitous as it would be um, across the pond because we, we're not so close to it. You know what I mean? We're not so physically close to the sources of palm oil as the rest. Of, it's, it's bloody expensive in the U.S. actually. We have a the huge debate here with the palm oil as well for the same reasons that Roger mentioned. A lot there's a lot of debate as to whether products that contain palm oil are vegan or not. Some people who consider themselves vegan don't have a problem with consuming palm oil. Mm. Um, some some people think it's like completely off limits. So um, certainly the the debates here on, on here as well. I don't know if that's because of our locality or really quite surprised to hear to hear that it's not an issue in the US because like I said it's it's quite a big debate here has been for quite some time yeah and is it the same for you Tim and Barbara are, are, are you not kind of engaging in this like like we obviously seem to be over oh, here I, no I wrote a, a post about it over a year ago oh. called cruel oil and um, I interviewed the man that was the head of um, earth balance about this issue and he said that their organic earth balance was from a privately sourced palm oil plantation in South America that was not displacing any animals. There, but, see, the hippie commune. Yes, but he yes. said the problem with, uh, they, try to source, <laughs> they try to source their palm oil from as uh, ethical a place as they can, but the problem is that these large multinational agri-core companies, they get it from everywhere, so whenever they buy it, they have no way of knowing if it comes from a good place or a bad place. Well, and, actually... Barbara, I found out something more least. about that while uh, reading about the honey debates. Obviously, honey is not vegan, but uh, I was very excited to hear that most of the honey that um, is shipped to the United States is not honey. And I was like, oh, wow, that's fucking awesome. Wish you told me. Would have eaten it. Anyway, turns out what China was doing was that they were selling sugar water that was dyed yellow to um, third-party countries. So they would sell it to countries like Yugoslavia and uh, random other weird Eastern Bloc countries and have them sell it to the US so that it didn't look like it was coming from China. And so what ended up happening is that even though they thought, okay, well, we're not getting the Chinese honey, which is the fake crap anyway, they were getting it, you know what I mean? Like with the size of the multinationals that are there now, even if you're getting it from a particular country that's quote unquote not involved, you can still never know. 
So it's honey laundering instead of money laundering. Yes. yes. <laughs> honey laundering. <laughs> well, you do you do know the joke about the bees going on strike because they what they wanted more honey and less flowers. Get it. I don't get that either. <laughs> no, I don't know. It's, it's an Irish joke, is it, Roger? No, it isn't. M more honey oh, and less flowers, yeah. more money and oh, less yes. hours. Yeah, What's yeah, the matter yeah. with you people? Yeah, we just, we just <laughs> God damn. <laughs> You're fucking useless, you lot. What's the matter with you? Come on, Dino, swear at them. Come on, Dino, swear. I, think, I, I was just going to say, I think the problem about the classifying palm oil as non-vegan, I think to, to those of us that are vegan and are established vegans and have been vegan a long time, I think it's important to make some effort to at least reduce the amount of palm oil in our diet, you know, because of the animal slaughter and suffering that's caused by that product. But I think in terms of, of trying to get non-vegans to become vegan, it could put another barrier in, in their way to say, yeah. well, you, you can't eat you can't eat meat, you can't eat dairy products. Oh, and you can't eat palm oil either. And because palm oil is in so many products, that would make it very, very difficult to- But, but that's the problem, Ronnie. You can't give up palm oil because it's not it's not listed as an ingredient and it's in everything. And yeah. so it makes it impossible for people to, you know, even try to boycott or find out the source of, uh, you know, what it, it like uh, someone just said, it's like if it says vegetable oil, it can be palm oil. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess you can, you can boycott the ones that say palm oil. I mean, all, all the, all the margarines in Ireland, for example, they've got palm oil in it. There's a, a new, a large supermarket chain is just, started selling a new vegan margarine and it's got a big vegan sign on the front and a big vegan sign on the back mm -hmm. and yet it's got palm oil yeah. in it and I, so nobody's I, buying it. Um, Most biscuits, even the vegan biscuits, have got palm oil in. So, you know, so there's a big debate about whether you can get sustainable palm oil. This is the, the hippie well, thing that Dino's on yeah. about. And so consequently then, you know, there's been a lot of argument about whether that's really sustainable, blah, 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 and everything else. And so I think it gets into yeah. a very difficult area by then. But... Um, I mean, I, I agree with Ronnie. It makes being vegan even inaccessible, more in, in, difficult from the in outside. In the US, Roger, we don't have the palm oil debates. We have the tomato debates. Um, in, yes. in Florida, where most of the tomatoes come from in the United States, they employ immigrant, illegal immigrant workers and they treat them extremely horribly. Um, we're talking threatening mm. to you know, physical violence against them, um, not feeding them enough, you know, uh, food, giving them much below minimum wage, uh, having them live in horrible, horrible uh, living conditions, uh, having no running water, having no electricity. We're talking about really disgusting working conditions. And these are something to the tune of like 90% of the tomatoes that are being sold throughout the country because Florida is the only state in the US that has a climate that's amenable to tomatoes being raised more than like the two months out of the year that's in season. And so like, what do you do? Do you tell people, well, okay, you're vegan now, uh, can't have this, 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 and this. And P.S., the sugar has bone char in it. And P.S., the wine has fish bladder in it. So avoid that. And then, by the by, in, avoid tomatoes as well. And while you're there, avoid corn because that has fish genes in it. You get to the point where you're boycotting yourself into a corner and you can't eat fucking anything. Right. Is the growing season two, two months in the summer? Because if, if so, you could have an Occupy <laughs> Florida's tomato fields campaign. My, my, my thing is, is like, I understand that there are larger issues. For example, I personally try not to shop at, what do you call, the, the big supermarkets, if I can help it. I try not to shop at like the Target or, well, I, 
obviously I don't shop at Walmart because there is no Walmart in New York City, but you know, even if I had the option, I would try to avoid it as much as possible. But there comes a point, you know, where what I mean, where it's like, um, you kind of have to pay your bills at the end of the month. And if you're sitting here, yes. and, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'd like to raise the awareness about it. And I'd like to, you know, get the word out that this is not okay. But I'm, I don't want to boycott myself into a corner to the point where I'm not eating tomatoes. I'm not eating fat. I'm not eating this, that, and the other thing, because it's like, everything is disgusting and fucked up in 30 different ways. Like capitalism is fucked. If, if we're being completely honest about it, every single thing that we buy is fucked on 10 different levels because we're exploiting workers, we're exploiting people, we're doing horrible, disgusting things. And I, I, I really wish that there was some way to sort of get the word out there without automatically jumping to a boycott, if you know what I mean. We need to get rid of exploitation and heighten awareness about it and how these kinds of exploitation intersect and are one leads to another. I think that's why it can seem so all-encompassing because you start unpeeling the onion and you you know there's more and more and it's all connected and pretty soon you're down to the root cause which is the exploitation itself. So Yeah, and I love that you said it's an onion that you're unpeeling because it makes you cry when you really think about what the <laughs> fucked upness that's going on with it. Yeah. That's the issue, Roger. It's not so much the fact that people are apathetic or aren't sympathetic to the palm oil issue. It's just that the palm oil issue is one amongst 10,000 other food issues that we have. For example, in the United States, um, there's this huge debate about um, what's called genetically modified organisms. And there's this company called Monsanto that pretty much is at the forefront of genetic modify, uh, modified uh, organisms. They sell these crops that have the fertilizer and the pesticides already built into the genome. And so the biggest um, agriculture companies that are selling all the produce to all the U.S. are basically using Monsanto's products. And Monsanto does really disgusting things. Like what they'll do is that there was an accident once where this truck was driving by this farmer's field and the seeds blew out onto his field. And so these Monsanto seeds were growing there. Since the farmer had not bought the seeds legitimately from Monsanto, Monsanto sued and made him destroy his entire crop. And this kind of thing happens over and over again. And they provide most of our vegetables. And so what's the solution? You buy organic, you buy, you know, fair trade, you buy blah, blah. But when 90% of the country, you know, can't really afford proper health care or much of anything else, you kind of wonder. That's what I mean when I say boycotting yourself into a corner. It's like veganism is not hard for me. It's not hard for you. We've been doing it for a while. We get it. But there comes a point when it's kind of like, how many issues are you going to be pissed off about before you starve yourself to death? Because you're just like, everything sucks. You try to go to Whole Foods and the owner is an asshole. Fucking, um, what's his name? Uh, Mackie, whatever his name. He's a jerk. He's a fucking jerk. He pays his workers poorly. Nobody who works at Whole Foods could ever afford to shop there. And then you have the other big organic uh, you know, co-ops and the rest of it. I can't afford to shop there. So it's like, at the end of the day, you're kind of left holding your $1 bill, trying to wonder what the fuck you're supposed to do with yourself. And you have 30 other issues going on all at the same time. There, You reach a point of burnout, you know? And I don't have the, what do you call, on truth. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not the only person who knows everything. So everybody's going to have to make their own decisions based on what they're capable of doing right about now with my financial ability. There's no way in hell that I can avoid all the things that I would like to avoid. 
I'm not going to go out and buy animal products because that's not something that I'm willing to, you know, support. But I'm going to be shopping at restaurants, sorry, at uh, grocery stores that sell meat. I'm going to be eating at restaurants that serve animal products. I'm going to be, you know, doing all kinds of things that are kind of shitty overall. And as nice as it would be to have the option to, you know, have a decent life without doing those horrible things, I'm not in a place right now where I can, you know what I mean? That's why we're looking at possibly having a project in the upcoming year in our um, animal rights group of developing a co-op, a food co-op. When my kids were growing up, a single mom, you know, pennies were scarce. Yeah. Um, we worked in a co-op. I was the checkout. My one son helped bag and the other son was stocking shelves. And they were pretty little at the time that we were doing this. It was the best we were ever able to eat because it was fresh, mm-hmm. good stuff that a family like ours couldn't afford. There's also a real concern. Um, there are parts of the world where there are food deserts where people really can't yes. get to, to you know, decent produce. And to me, that would be a hardship if I, because I really couldn't afford much fresh produce when my kids were growing up. And now that I live on almost all fresh produce, it would really be awful to be without even a little bit of fresh produce. So, you know, those are issues of, um, again, exploitation and domination. We're just not taking care of one another very well. But I agree with you, Dino. It's too overwhelming. We can't take on all the issues simultaneously. And everybody has to decide which issues they're going to work on and which ones they can afford to, you know, find a substitute or do without or however. Right. And, and we're always learning more, just like the tomatoes is a fairly recent thing that's hit the press a lot of us didn't know about. So, you know, what do you do? Do you just give up tomatoes? You give up bananas? You give up apples? Right. I mean, pretty soon you're eating, what, carrots and potatoes and that's it? Right. I mean, and that's what I meant when I say boycott yourself into a corner. Like, I... I'm trying to make this accessible not only to everybody else, but also to myself where I've got a very limited schedule and I've got a very limited budget and I've got to work within that budget. When I first moved to New York, I was living in a neighborhood um, called Bushwick. This was back in 2007 before it had gotten hippified and um, hipsterfied and gentrified and everything else like that. And there's now like it's, it's food smug, you know, central right now. But back when I moved there first, I had two liquor stores in walking distance. I had three fried chicken places, two crappy Chinese food, you know, takeaway places, a couple of burger joints, and um, one grocery store that was five blocks away. Yeah. I had everything else that was fried and disgusting and processed and everything within like one block radius of my apartment. Well, my whatever. And I had what were called bodegas, which are these like kind of little independently owned um, mini shops that have produce, of course, but they're not the best quality. And obviously they're not organic and obviously they're not, you know, you know what I mean? If you can pickings, right. I mean, there was some, there was some pretty good produce there. I could always find yuca. I could always find plantains. I could always find tomatoes. I could always find avocado, but being able to find tomatoes, avocados, plantains, and yuca in the dead of winter, kind of lets me know that it's probably not being grown in upstate New York, you know? <laughs> but that's what they had. And so you kind of work with what you have. And when you're, and when I first moved to New York, I was working some really grotesque hours because it was expensive and we were trying to, you know, save up enough money to afford a bigger apartment and whatever. Point is, is that 
when I'm getting home at two o'clock in the morning, that grocery store is not open. It's not like my apartment here in Manhattan where I have 24-hour grocery stores all over the place. I can go pretty much wherever I want, whenever I want, and it's, and it's fine. So I'd have to go to the crappy bodega where they have crappy vegetables, and I'd have to spend upwards of like five to ten bucks a day to buy the vegetables to cook the dinner that the two of us are eating at, you know, two o'clock in the morning because that's when I'm getting home. Point is, is like, it's a lot more expensive to, like, Barbara, what you said about those food deserts, I I haven't heard that term before, but I think it, it's very evocative. You know what I mean? Yes. I feel for those people because a lot of people in those areas um, have health issues. Mm-hmm. And, and you can understand that like when you're talking about fried food and fast food being what's available and affordable in their neighborhoods, it really puts a burden on these families to try to raise healthy children. Well, like when you go to the um, grocery store, everything is very, very inexpensive because it's in the middle of nowhere and they can't charge the high prices that they do in Manhattan. But the point is, is like who goes to the grocery store when this is one block away from the subway and one block away from your house? When you literally don't see anything else on your way home from work or from school, and this is what you have nearby, where else are you going to go? This is where you're going to go to pick up your stuff for the day. And it costs, and it does cost, because those Chinese takeaway places, uh, your average meal would cost you like five, six bucks. And that may not seem like a lot of money, but imagine spending five, six bucks per meal multiple times a week. Right. It adds up real quick. And with a family, times four or five every time you... Yeah. Well, Barbara, you you lived in that situation, so kind of how did you navigate it? Well, one of the blessings that I had when when we were in that situation is um, we lived in a rural area where people would leave zucchini on the, in the summer in boxes in front of their house and take it away so we made everything you can imagine with zucchini and also at the produce stands you could get ugly produce which was you know bent damaged brown mm-hmm. that that didn't look good but it was still healthy so i would always get a big box of of that produce you know as and do as best i can and we ate pretty humbly and i probably still do for me transitioning to vegan because i was vegetarian for a number of years was actually well, like like a lot of vegans, it opened up a whole world of food to me, and I actually find it much easier than being vegetarian because it's so much clearer. And now there's so much more support, just like finding your podcast and your cookbooks, that very little tweaking was required. And I'm so enthused about the way I eat now; it's so much better. And as a, just a side bonus, my cholesterol came down 100 points with no effort when I was on a really strict diet as a vegetarian because I have genetically high cholesterol. Oh, wow. So for me, vegan rocks. <laughs> I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, it's great. I have fresh produce in the house. Um, I've found good sources for produce where I'm living now. And I have a grandson that even when his family goes out to dinner, he asked to come over here and have one of my humble meals. So he's he's very happy with vegan food. Isn't it funny how, like, when you're – well. What you said about humble meals and uh, living in a rural area really rang true for me because my mom tells me stories about when she used to live in um, the south of India in the middle of nowhere. We're talking, we're not even talking about a city. We're talking about, you know, like a township where you had something like 200 people or so living in that entire township. She said that she would have a deal with the local farmers where they would give her the leftover cattle fodder. And... In India, the cattle got spinach, basically. They got a lot of spinach that they would eat for their fodder. 
And so at the end of each night, when the farmers were done feeding their cattle, they would come to my mom's house and give her as much of that cattle fodder as she wanted for free. And so she would always have spinach in the house. And what do you know? <laughs> That's what they mm -hmm. ate all the time. And she had a deal going with all the um, fruit and vegetable vendors where she would, uh, where she would kind of basically say, okay, whatever you have left over at the end of the day, bring it to me and I'll, I'll take it all, you know, and I'll give you like a small amount of money every week for, you know, just to take away your leftovers so you don't have to take it home with you. And honestly, those recipes that she told me about, I passed along to some other people who were also in similar situations and they're like, yeah, that's pretty tasty. <laughs> You know, there are places even now, like I found in my local grocers, they have a little wooden stand that you wouldn't notice it except mm -hmm. unless you were really investigating. And it's right at the end of all the produce yes. and where, the, where the, the workers go into their place, there's a little stand there and they bag stuff up and it's all a dollar a bag. A dollar, yes. And I got eight ripe, delicious mangoes. And now normally one mango is kind of off the budget. And I made this great mango ice cream. And how often would I have a recipe with six mangoes in it because there's <laughs> the price of a mango. Um, but, you know, there's stuff that you have to use right away. But it's really worth checking those kinds of things um, as far as for economical ways to get more fresh produce in your diet. That's kind of actually how I shop is that um, I go to the store and I see what's on that manager special table. That's what they call it up here, they call it manager specials. And they'll have like two, three pounds of produce in a little plastic baggie for a dollar. And I'll, I'll just buy that because that's what I can afford. But the beauty of it is that I don't have to buy 30 pounds of it. I just buy a bag, maybe two right. bags or something. That lasts me for a day and then I go back the next day because it's right on my way home from the subway when I'm you know, uh, walking home from the subway, I just pick it up there. I'm assuming that it wouldn't be so easy if you have to drive. <laughs> right, but it, it is a good hint for people. I think there are people that that can really help if you ferret out where you can find these little bargains of fresh produce. Right. And and then you cut out the bad parts and you cook it and you eat it. Mm -hmm. Ergo, fuck raw people. <laughs> <laughs> Except for lunches. Right. <laughs> you know, when you lived in Florida, where did you live? Uh, I lived in um, Miami for the first half of it, and then we lived in um, Hollywood off of uh, Sterling and Sheridan. So your experience being vegan has, has been in relatively large cities. Is, mm -hmm. is that accurate? What, what because I was listening to the, what you said about and what Barbara said about the uh, desert and that just – The food desert. Yeah, and I was thinking one of our, one of our AR Zone admins mentioned last night that living in a, a small town that's more or less – off the beaten path, isolated from big cities, the um, ability to meet up with other vegans and just have that level of uh, sort of support and places to go and things to do compared to a big city uh, makes a big difference in a person's life as they it as does. they try to navigate. Yes. So what's your experience? You know, I guess you've always lived in a big city, so maybe I'm maybe I, maybe you can't speak to this, but can I you? I can. Yeah. I can. Number one, reach out to those people who are sort of vegetarian. Reach out to those people who, quote unquote, don't eat that much meat. Reach out to those people who kind of sort of get it. You know what I mean? When you're living in the middle of nowhere and you don't have much of a choice, you need to find allies wherever you can find them. And the people who are going out and hunting and, you know, 
doing all kind of horrible things, probably not going to be on board with where you're coming from. I, I find that there's this kind of attitude, Tim, with, with vegans where they feel like I'm better than you, morally speaking. So I kind of don't want to socialize with you and I don't want to hang out with you and I don't want to be your roommate and I don't want to like have anything to do with you, which I feel is kind of damaging, not only in small towns, but in any kind of living situation where when you start cutting people off, you start limiting your experiences. And so those people who are vegetarian, those people who are sort of vegetarian, those people who are pescatarian, find them. They're there everywhere you go. There's going to be somebody who's kind of sort of gets it, who's sort of kind of on the fence, who, who understands where you're coming from when you say, you know, I don't want to have X, Y, Z in my diet. They're like, yeah, I get it. Find the gluten-free people. The gluten-free people tend to be very understanding because they know what it's like to go to a place and be like, uh, okay, what's in this? What's in that? Do you put soya sauce in this? Do you put uh, acetate in that? Do you put miso in this? Like, and ask 10,000 questions. You're going to have to make your allies wherever you find them. And if it means reaching out to a sort of wider community, so be it. I, I find that just to keep my sanity going, I would um, find myself in, when I was in South Florida, because you may have called Hollywood a large city, I would have called it, you know, a bullshit, middle of nowhere, piece of crap town, which I hated being in because it was like, it was rednecks and it was, you know, just stupid people and just like really small-minded people who have, never left their town and don't think that there's anything going on outside of that town and would never want to leave it. And so I had to kind of reach out to those people who sort of got it just to keep myself sane because until I found the only other vegan that I knew who lived in that city, I was by myself in, in, in Hollywood, Florida, that is. Um, there's a large vegetarian community. There's not a large vegan community. And I couldn't find another vegan who was abolitionist vegan. So I kind of had to just be like, whatever, you're a vegetarian, you're close enough, I'll hang out with you. You're a sort of vegetarian, fine, whatever, I'll hang out with you. You eat fish once in a while, whatever, I don't care right now. Can we please go get some hummus? I'm, I'm so sick of, you know, having a bloody steak in front of me every time I go somewhere. Go online, find your community, reach out to whoever you can, because it's, it's when you make these connections with other people, Tim, is that that's when you start changing their minds, is by hanging out repeatedly with the sort of vegetarians and the sort of vegans. Uh, there was one unnamed sort of vegan who would put butter into his cookies and didn't tell me anything until like the third time I'd eaten them. And I was like, why are you putting fucking butter in this? You could have put oil. It would have been just fine. Anyway, he tends to be a recipe follower, but we're not, we're, we're not getting into that. Point is, is that They'll get there. They'll get there. It was through hanging out with me who was actually sticking to my guns and being a vegan and being a happy vegan and not a preachy vegan that he eventually went completely vegan and decided, you know what? I don't need that butter. You know what? I can do without, you know, the exceptions once in a while. I'll be okay. But it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been willing to expand my horizons and at least just try to get across to those people who got it. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. It's so depressing sounding, though, isn't it? <laughs> well, no. I mean, it's realistic. I mean, the, you know, the vegans are one percent of the population. You know, right. and if that, and so unless you've 
figured out how to hang out with you know one out of every hundred people you meet. I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't usually meet a hundred people. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I live in a fairly small town, and I yeah, there well, just aren't that many of us. So Gainesville, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty unfortunate. So. <laughs> you know, Dino, you had a podcast that was um, a bunch of your friends, uh, vegan friends, uh, like a party or something I that you think, pod- Yes. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I was listening to that. I was kind of disappointed at first because podcasts are what kept me connected because I moved to North Texas and didn't know another vegan in the whole world. And uh, I didn't know anybody in Texas, so I'm listening to that. And then I really liked it because I started feeling like, wow, there's somewhere in the world that you can have a whole party of people that are vegan. <laughs> so I wrote you an email about it because it meant so much to me. It gave me such hope. And I'm at the grocery store, you know, a couple of weeks later, and I've got my little AirPods in, you know, doing my shopping. And all of a sudden you come on and you read this letter from me. And yeah. I was like, my mouth was open and I felt like <laughs> so embraced by the vegan community because of that connection with you. So sometimes you do like a podcast and you don't think anyone's, hearing it Listening, right yeah and then you don't realize that there's people like me on the other end that you just gave them a lifeline you know so it really and uh, all the cooking tips and all the stuff you would be surprised and like i said i kept them and would listen to them over and over because you capture capture different ideas from each of them so you know i really am grateful for you for providing those for the vegan community and for um vegan curious and vegetarian and others that listen Oh my God, you're getting me all misty-eyed. That's really sweet. <laughs> Dino, I'd like to thank you very much on behalf of Zone for spending your time with us today. This has been a really enjoyable podcast. You've given us so much information that we can take away. I can't possibly thank you enough. It's, it's been great. Thank you very much. And thank you guys for being so supportive of me from uh, the time that I came on there. That's been really sweet of you guys. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you, Dino. We love you. <laughs> 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 <laughs>